All right, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation. We'll be finishing chapter 1 tonight here in the book of Revelation. So, um, just recalling some of what we've, we've already covered. You know, uh, last week we, we covered verses 4 through 8, and looking more specifically at this Trinitarian formula we, that we saw very clearly in that first chapter, in that first part, with uh, the greeting to the seven churches. And, you know, we learn about who God is there very clearly, right? We see that grace and peace comes from him who is, who was, and who is to come, which that text also ends with that in verse 8, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, knowing very clearly that this is in reference to God the Father. And then we see the seven spirits, and this, as I broke down for you guys, is a reference actually to the Holy Spirit, uh, not broken up into pieces, but is fully present in every church, as we will see up ahead to these seven churches. Um, seven spirits were before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So we see who God is very clearly there. But then we also see what God has done in the rest of that passage to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And he's done something. He's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is coming. Christ is coming. And that's why he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, as we think about the text we're entering into today, it's broken down into four parts, and I'll explain those as we go around. But in opening this message, I want to ask you a question. And it sounds a lot very similar to the sermon I preached the day we went to do our last disaster relief from Mark chapter 8, when Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi, and he asks this question. I want to ask it of you tonight. Who do people say Jesus is? Who do people say Jesus is? There's been a lot of answers to that. A lot of answers to that question. Obviously, in Jesus' time, they said, well, you're John the Baptist, or you're like Elijah, one of the prophets. He said, but who do you say that I, am, that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, you know, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. And that's expounded upon further in Matthew in his gospel. Now, when we ask this question, who do people say Jesus is, it brings to mind a book I read in college. It's called American Jesus, How the Son of God Became a National Icon by Stephen Prothrow. He's at a Boston university. He's an atheist, but he wrote a lot about Jesus. And actually, the different interpretations that people in America have taken on about Jesus that are by no means, about none of them are biblical. And what's really interesting about this book is surprisingly how accurate he describes a lot of these movements uh, and critiquing them, even theologically, and he's an atheist. Uh, it was a very, very fantastic book. Highly recommend it. But here's the different Jesuses that maybe have appeared in our culture. Let me read them to you. So we have Jesus, the enlightened sage, the wise man, right? Uh, and that's one view that people see him as. So he's just a really wise guy. Another view of Jesus is this sweet, tender Savior. He's very effeminate and kind and gentle. You always see him in the pictures with the little lamb, right? Um, that kind of paints Jesus as this real sweet Savior. Then you see this manly Redeemer, this macho man Jesus, right? That's the other Jesus we see. Then you see this Jesus Christ superstar, which you, this is from the 70s and from the hippie movement. This hippie Jesus is like, peace, love, man. You know, that's all it, what it's about. 
These are the different Jesuses that people have said, hey, I want to take Jesus for my movement, Jesus for my idea, and say, I'm going to adapt him to my purposes. But then he breaks us down as resurrections. Those are resurrections of the way Jesus is made different in culture. But then he says part two, reincarnations. I don't agree with everything he lays out, but interestingly enough, he gives four more. And listen to these. Jesus has been told to say he's the Mormon elder brother. The Mormon elder brother. So that's another interpretation of Jesus in our culture. Another one. He's the black Moses. No, seriously. Read Black Liberation Theology. He is the black Moses. He's the one to come and liberate people from their oppressors. Actually, I highly recommend, just came back from G3, the Just Thinking podcast, Virgil Walker and Daryl Harrison. They had a session called The Antichrist of Black Liberation Theology. You've got to listen to it. Um, so there's the black Moses. Then there's the rabbi. He's just seen as the Jewish guy, right? Uh, and Jesus was Jewish. Right? But they don't think of him as the Son of God. It's almost back to the enlightened sage type thing, but a little different. And then lastly, the Oriental Christ. Um, really adapted to Confucius and these different things. But there's these different views of Jesus that people have out there. And we see that within the church. Um, and just to give one example, even from his book, this idea of the hippie Jesus created what's called the seeker-sensitive movement in the church. Do you guys know what the seeker-sensitive movement is? Yeah? So the seeker-sensitive movement is this idea that um, we're, the church's purpose in gathering is for evangelism. So we make our service in the church evangelistic. So our songs are going to be appealing to people. Our messages are going to be appealing to people because we're appealing to the lost people in the church. But that's not the purpose of church. Now, it is our, you know, we could say, mission to go and make disciples of all nations to reach the lost. We, we get that. We got to do that. But... It's not our role in the church to make the worship of God lost people-centered. And that's what the seeker-sensitive movement sought to do. It diminished theology and upgraded experience and saying, did you have a good experience at church today? How did that make you feel? Those kind of questions, very feeling and experience-driven. Uh, and it has been very deadly for our churches. Our churches are anemic. Our churches are weak because of seeker-sensitive theology. Now, that's who people say Jesus is. There's different things in America. But Jesus, I think through this text, for our audience today, and I'll, I'll get into this more later, is, is revealing who he is. When he asks the question, who do you say that I am, to you, 21st century Christian, how do you think of him? Well, in this text, John has a revelation, a vision of Jesus and that is who Jesus is. Anything that deviates from that is false. So the main idea of this message, for I, I believe the main idea of this text, to John, to his audience of the seven churches, this is, this is what it is, you can put it on the screen. John is telling the seven churches of his vision of the glorified Christ, that he heard, saw, and obeyed, that they might keep the word written to them. Okay, John is telling the seven churches of his vision of the glorified Christ, this vision that he heard, saw, and obeyed, that they might keep the word that's written to them. That's Really, this is, as you think about it, I'm almost tying the beginning part of Revelation 1, where he said, blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. And you're going to see in this text today, there's two commands. He tells John to write these things down, write these things down, the beginning and end. And then what is he telling him to write down, though? Well, it goes right into what next week's text will be, and for the next seven weeks, 
each of the different churches and his address to the churches. So this main idea really encapsulates what comes right before, what's happening in it, and what comes right after, what's going on in this text, okay? So let's look at verse 9 through 11. This is our first point. This is how I believe the text is divided, the structure of it. Verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So you notice right at the beginning, John, for the third time in this book, has mentioned his own name. And he addresses himself as, notice, he doesn't even say apostle, even though he is the apostle John. He addresses as their brother and partner. In what, though? Look what's happening in this text. In the tribulation the suffering, the affliction that they're experiencing as a church right now in 90 to 95 AD. And it says, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, um, real quick, uh, for some of you, I told you this, but earlier, this, this week actually uh, had to be Friday night. Yes, Friday night, I got to hear Vody Bauckham preach on this exact text from last week. So Revelation 1, 4 through 8, he preached on this text. And he takes an idealist position on the text and uh, amillennialist position. And uh, if you don't remember what that is, check your notes from a couple weeks ago. But in summary, he pointed out some things that I think every position has some truth in it, by the way. Um, every position on Revel every major position, let's put it that way, not all positions. Um, and the truth there is that there's this idea with numbers. We talked about numerology before. And we see a lot of time these threes come up the number three. And we see here again, these threes, and Vody mentioned this, and I knew that this was to be the case, but he pointed it out in this opening, and I thought it was really helpful, and I just wanted to share that with you. Notice the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. These things show up in threes. And what happens from here? So he talks about the kingdom, and, he, and, and in doing talking about the kingdom, remember he made them a kingdom of priests to their God, and it says in the patient endurance. He's a partner in tribulation. He's a partner in the kingdom. Hey, we're all priests to God. But then also, in their patient endurance. Now, guys, you're going to want to mark that word. Because patient endurance repeatedly shows up. You're going to see that directly in his addresses to the seven churches. To have patient endurance. And it really has this idea of, you know, you're, you're really under a load. You're under a heavy load. But you're, you're not stopping. You're going to keep going. You're patiently enduring this trial. So notice, though, as, as this text goes on, these are all in Jesus, by the way. The, the affliction is in Jesus, the kingdom in Jesus, this patient endurance is in Jesus. It's all in Jesus. It's not apart from him. It makes me think of um, when we talk about in Philippians, I believe it's Philippians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you can. Philippians 3, when he says, and starting in verse, uh, I'll start in verse 9, he says, right before that, in order I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen to this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may, right here, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so thinking about that, we share in Christ's suffering with him as believers. This is what the patient endurance is referring to, this type of enduring like Christ endured. Now it goes on though, and he says, look, I, John, I was on an island. 
He got exiled to an island because of his gospel ministry. And this island was off the coast of the Mediterranean in a small island called Patmos. And on this island, he received this vision. He's really giving us a setting of when all this took place. And, and this is the account, right? He says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why he was there. He tells us why he was exiled. Now, this is really important. On account of the word of God. You know, this word, remember we talked about this. this it's sourced from God. It's from him. But it says, in the testimony of Jesus. Turn to Revelation 12, 11. Everyone, Revelation 12, 11. Just slip a few pages forward in the book. And you're going to see this, this language. And actually, let's start at verse 10. Verse 10. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, listen, and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Testifying, bearing witness to the gospel, even unto death. It's going to be key for those who are suffering in, tribula in this tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ. He was there suffering on Patmos on account of the word and the testimony of Jesus, and these people bore testimony even to death, as we see in Revelation 12. But then verse 10, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Let's talk about two parts of this verse. When he says in the Spirit, he's not thinking in a very Apostle Paul type way, Pauline type way, you know, where he, Paul exhorts, he says, you know, walk in the Spirit or walk by the Spirit or be filled with the Spirit. That's not the same type of thing he's referring to here because he's giving a prophecy. And when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he's receiving revelation in this point. That's why this is what happens here. And notice it's on the Lord's day. I want to talk about that. It being on the Lord's day, it's not a reference to the Sabbath. Right? It's not a reference to the seventh day, because it was actually understood, you can read in the book of Acts, the Lord's Day was considered the first day of the week. Hey guys, that's why we meet on Sunday. If you didn't know that, now you know. All right, now you know. Um, so we meet on Sunday because it's the first day of the week, and it acknowledges the resurrection of Christ, being the dawn, here, right, listen here, of the new creation. That Christ being the firstborn from the dead, like we learned about, right? That's the new dawn, a dawning of a new age. And so we see very clearly here, that's when they meet on the first day, on the Lord's day. And he says, I heard behind me a loud voice, and he goes on to describe it, like a trumpet. Now that is a figure of speech called a what, when you use the word like? A simile, right? You use the word like or as, it's a simile, you're making a comparison. So he's not saying, I heard a trumpet, I heard a loud voice, like a trumpet. Uh, anyone go to the LSU game last night? You see the marching band out there, right? I mean, when those guys start playing, especially if you're close to them, it's like, whoa, right? It's, it's loud, right? And uh, they get going. Anyone here play trumpet ever or play a horn instrument? Horn instrument? Anyone? Okay, trombone. Right? I mean, those things can, they can get loud, can't they? I'm sure you know your parents practice in your room all the time, right? Sometimes, yes. <laughs> You're like, mar, 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 Jesus is coming back, right? And that's what you did. Okay. But, um, <laughs> right, but those can be loud and they can grab attention fast. And we see here this loud voice like a trumpet says to John, Write, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus. We'll stop there before I read the names again. But he says, write what you see. It's a command. It's in the imperative uh, mood. It gives a command to tell him to do something. Now, writing this down, by the way, it's, it's really important that we just talk about that for a moment. It's not like you say, hey, go talk to him. 
told them to write it down. And in writing it down, it's like an authoritative message. That's what it is. It's, it has authority to it because the source of who it's coming from. To be written down, it does denote the seriousness of it. Write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Now, this is really important. You, I showed you guys the map the week before. I don't have to, we don't have to pull it up. But on that map, Ephesus was the first one off the coast. And it follows clockwise around. This whole list follows clockwise, which would be the typical route of a courier or a messenger. So it's to Ephesus, and it goes clockwise, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and then therefore they could go back to Ephesus after that if they wanted. And it works in the circle that way. And so this big circle, this big area where a lot of churches were, uh, this is where these things were sent to. And that really covers our, the first break in this text to go to the second, which is 12 through 16. And what I want to do here is compare this description in 12 through 16 of Christ with a description in the book of Daniel. But first we'll read this description of Christ, and then we're going to go to Daniel. Turn your eyes to 12 to 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, I do want to do some comparison. And if I could have someone turn to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 10. And you can also, actually, you guys can all turn there. If you want to have your hand in Revelation, you can kind of flip it back and forth. to Daniel 10 and Revelation 1. There's one verse in Daniel 7, but this chart of comparison, by the way, I got from James Hamilton. He's a, a professor at Southern. And he gives these descriptions of, of Christ in comparison to this Son of Man figure in Daniel, or an angelic figure in Daniel. Listen to this. Someone read Daniel 10.5. Okay? 10.5. I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold... A man clothed in linen with a, fine, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. All right. So that, that's what we had read also when we were singing tonight uh, in, in between our, in the songs. Clothed in linen. Now notice one thirteen of Revelation. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. See the comparison here. And then someone read uh, Daniel 7.9. Daniel 7.9. I got it. Okay. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, Revelation 1.14a. Right, so we see this, this description once again of this, this person. And now, look, really, chapter 10, verse 6 covers a bunch of them. If you look at 10, verse 6. So someone go ahead and read verse 6, and we're going to make the comparisons across. 10.6. Go ahead. Yeah. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Hmm. 
Those compare with four other things in Revelation. So if we just start with the, his eyes like flaming torches, it says in 14, 114b, his eyes were like a flame of fire. We see this description also seen in, um, later in Revelation as well. In 10.6d, his arms of, of, of Daniel, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. Verse 15 of Revelation, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. 10.6e, in the sound of his words, like the sound of a multitude. Verse 15 of Revelation, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And then 10.6b, his face like the appearance of lightning. And then once again, 116c, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. In other words, an incredibly bright light. We see the comparison between both. And, you know, we know from studying Mark's gospel that Jesus is the Son of Man figure in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. That's Jesus. He's the one who stands before the Ancient of Days and the one who's like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and might. His kingdom will endure forever. We see that very clearly. So now let's walk through the verses verse by verse and just describe some of these things that or look and see how John is describing these things. He says, verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. So um, he wanted to, now it's really interesting, this phrase, see the voice. You, you, don't, you can't see a voice. But when, you, when the voice, you obviously have that happen. It's, it's, it's a word used in Scripture, to, you know, essentially to know that God has spoken. And so when he's turning to see the voice, in other words, he wants to understand and perceive what had just taken place. He turns around to see this voice that was speaking to him. And on turning, he sees, this is the first thing he notices, he says, I saw seven golden lampstands. If we look in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 49, it talks about descriptions of instruments in the temple. It talks, you know, Solomon made all these vessels for the house of the Lord. In verse 49, it says the lampstands were made of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north before the inner sanctuary. We see that very clearly uh, in the text, and it's a, really a reference even to these temple things. So this idea of worship is definitely tied into this. But then even thinking about Jesus' analogy in Matthew chapter 5, uh, 14 to 16, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, a lamp stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we get this idea of a lampstand very clearly. And I think as it regards these churches, you know, we've already seen that there's seven churches. And we see on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, so Jesus is standing in the midst of all seven of these lampstands. And the purpose of it is, you, you know, a lampstand, you don't put a bowl over it. It stands up so all can see. Guys, this, we can really derive a lot from this. It's the purpose of the church. It's to glorify God, to be a light so that all can see Christ. So notice, the description of the Son of Man isn't literal. And what I mean by that is a figure of speech. Obviously, um, he's, he's trying the best he can with human language to describe Christ. Now, when I say literal, I mean it, this literally took place, like this happened. But he's using figure of speech to describe it best he can because these are heavenly things. So he says, I see one like a Son of Man. So he's not saying, if he would have said, I see a Son of Man, he could be referring to one of you guys if he just said, a Son of Man. But he's not. He's saying someone who is, you know, appears to be like a son of man. Now, Jesus is fully God and fully man, of course. But he's trying to just describe this, this beautiful thing. And you're going to see what happens. I mean, he sees Christ and he falls at his feet as though dead, verse 17. So he faints before Jesus out of fear. Now, um, 
regarding Jesus and regarding who he is as the Son of Man, you make making these figures of speech all throughout. Christ talks about being lifted up. He talks about being glorified. And this Son of Man is a glorified figure, right? I already mentioned that, Daniel 7. He's a glorified figure. But the way for Jesus to get to this place of glory was through the road of suffering. Let's look at John's Gospel. Maybe we can flip through a few passages together. Go to John 3.14. We're all familiar with 3.16. If you go a few verses before, John 3.14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This must happen. It's necessary that it happens. Why? That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We see that very clearly as well, don't we? Then go to John chapter 8, verse 28. John chapter 8, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, there we see it again, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that please him. We see once again, the Son of Man has to be lifted up. Look at John 12, 23. John 12, 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So this is in a transitioning part of the text, major transition where Lazarus is raised from the dead. And Jesus reveals a lot of who he is through this miracle. And he says the hour has come. And if, actually this word hour is used all throughout John's gospel. The, the hour has not yet come. It has not yet come. It has not yet come. And now in John's gospel, in 1223, the hour has come. It's here. And this is referring to the glorification of the Son. Now, we continue, and you, you really look at the next part. I just flip a couple pages over to John 13, 31. And we're going to see what this glory is. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. We see very clearly what God is doing. He's leading Christ to the cross. He's leading him to suffer, to be lifted up. Why? That he might be glorified. And now, in Revelation, chapter 1, we see this glorified Christ and his glorified state. This golden sash that he wears, it goes on, it says, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, really references, we would say, these priestly garments that he would wear. This white hair indicates wisdom. And in this case, we would say in God's sense, omniscience. He knows everything. Proverbs talks about, you know, the glory of young men is their strength and the glory of old men is their hair, their gray hair, right? Their white hair. So if your parents have white hair, say, look at your glory, right? So, you know, you could go home to your dad, Jacob, and says, man, look at that glory on your head, right? And just say, you know, <laughs> white hair. It's the same to your dad, right? Um, but not your dad. I guess, you know, he just, he, yeah, he's blessed, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he's blessed. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> yeah well, yeah, right. <laughs> Hey, be careful, be careful. Some, some she-bears ate up some boys making fun of a bald prophet. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Okay, all right. So, um, <laughs> oh man, Marcion. Okay, all right. So, the next part, right? The next part. We see here, you know, his hair, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. He's trying to describe it best he can. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. 
This idea of Christ's eyes being like a flame of fire, it's not like you saw Christ and his eyes were like, you know, flaming fire, right? It wasn't like that, right? That's kind of weird looking, I'm sorry. But um, it's judgment. Fire purifies, all right? Let's look at a few passages that reference this. They're eyes of judgment. Isaiah 29, verse 6. Isaiah 29, verse 6, this is what it says. You will be visited by the Lord of hosts, this is the Lord Almighty, with thunder and with earthquake and great noise and whirlwind, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame, and the flame of a devouring fire. You know, it's so funny. Um, you know, sorry if you like some of these charismatic folks, but there's a song that came out and it's worth, they're like trying to worship God and they're calling him all consuming fire and they're, they're, they're and that's, God is a consuming fire, read Hebrews 12. But the way they sing about it is as if God is just burning with, like, passion, right? And they're not thinking about God as a judge. And when it talks about God as a consuming fire, it means he consumes in judgment. And his eyes are like a flame of fire, eyes of judgment. He purifies his church. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And he talks about this. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, it's like, uh-oh, Thyatira, you're about to get it, <laughs> right? And remember, he's a faithful witness. He's reliable in his witness to that church. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, this continues going, and his, this burnished bronze has this idea that Christ is like a conqueror, that he is unconquerable. He's a soldier, and he's powerful. He will crush anyone who stands in his way. He is the victor over all. He has authority over all. His voice. Now, this is a great theme. I love looking up the cross-references for this, guys, um, all over the scriptures. And we could jump around to some of these. Ezekiel uh, chapter 43, verse 2. Listen to this. I loved it. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. Let's, let's, let's glory in just this amazing passage about voices. A psalm. 29.3, Psalm 29.3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Keep, um, skip it down to verse 7. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Just looking at that passage is so powerful about the voice of the Lord. And his voice is like many waters. Uh, Psalm 93, verse 4. It says this, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And lastly, I just want to look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 24. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty a sound of tumult like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And he's talking about the wings of angels. So in trying to describe the wings of angels, he says it was like the sound of the Almighty. It's amazing. Hey, who here has been to like Niagara Falls? Anyone? Niagara Falls? Anyone? Okay. I haven't been either. Okay. Anyone been to a waterfall? And was it pretty loud? Somewhat loud, right? This loud sound of water. Who, who here has maybe been whitewater rafting? Okay, 
and, and, and you get into a current, a, a spot where it's real heavy, you know, and it's really crazy, you hear that sound of rushing water, right? Who here has um, been on a beach during a storm? Anyone? Yeah, I have. Um, and the waves are crashing, and it's loud, right? And guys, um, who, who here has been in a flood? <laughs> right? <laughs> Just about everybody, right? Welcome. 2016, whoop, right? The sound of many waters. And there's something terrifying. There really is. There's something jarring, or maybe not even terrifying. There might be something majestic if it's not a disaster, right? Like the flood or a hurricane. But looking at the rapids or looking at Niagara Falls, it could be something that like takes your breath away, just like, wow. It's powerful. Yes, it's filled with power. Thinking about how much water is coming over the edge of Niagara Falls. We could go into all those details. But just the point is, the image of the voice of God is something that's majestic. It's something that's powerful. It's something that it takes your breath away in a way. It's terrifying. I would not want to be swimming on the edge of Niagara Falls. <laughs> right? Not even in one of those metal barrel things. Like, hey, let's see if I can survive. No, those guys are crazy. I would never do that. Um, but listen, this voice is powerful. It goes on talking about Christ, and it says, um, after the voice section, it says, His voice was like the roar of many waters. In His right hand, He held seven stars. And this is referring, we're going to see in just a moment, the, the author of the text points back, he says these are referring to the churches. But notice it goes saying this, From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, um, Literally, right, this isn't literal, right? Like this, remember? So obviously, because his mouth might be bleeding if there's literally a sword coming from it, right? Because what is he trying to say about his voice and his word? It pierces. And we think of some passages of Scripture that talk about this, don't we? We have, um, and we have some passages in Revelation I want to look at. If you look at Revelation uh, 2.12, it says here that, um, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The words of him who has a sharp twitched sword. Or Revelation 19, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And this is when he comes down to uh, conquer, and he comes from heaven. This is the second coming of Christ we're reading here, where he comes to rule and reign for a thousand years. And then we see... Um, this two-edged sword language elsewhere in Scripture. We see it in Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You guys, who can tell me what's the purpose of a two-edged sword versus a one-edged sword? Right? It's to stab. It is to pierce. It's to drive deep. One-edged sword, you're slicing. You're slicing and dicing, right? Um, but a two-edged sword, it's meant to gut them in and, and gut them on the way out. It's meant to kill. Now, in other words, it's effective in what it's doing and in its, in its mission here, and its, per- its purpose. This two-edged sword, it comes from the mouth of Christ. And so that means what God says pierces. Maybe in, in just some sense of reflection here for a moment, maybe remember the time you came to faith in Christ. Just everyone go back to that moment where you truly understood the gospel and you were saved, and you know your heart was made new, you were changed. Go back to that time and think about it. And think about the weight that was lifted off your shoulders when you realized you were forgiven. When you realized that God loved you. That he died on the cross for you and that he rose again to give you life. And if you would, just re- you would just repent and believe, you could be saved. And in that moment, that burden, like in the Pilgrim's Progress, it's on 
Christian's back, it rolls off his back into the tomb, never to be seen again. You're forgiven. You're at the cross. And you recognize the love of God. And, and that, that burden is lifted. That two-edged sword of the word pierced your heart and said, you are a sinner. That you are under the wrath of God. That you, if you don't trust in Christ, you will be separated from him forever. And that reality was reality for all of us at some point. You know, I'd also say that one thing about that that I always thought of when I think of the passage is, you know, how, you know, how, the, how Paul says the word is living and active, active sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce through the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Yes, yep. I found when I became a believer, even was considering it, was just how, like, how, how the scripture was able to get to the heart of a matter. Yeah, absolutely. Every subject. Yeah. Book like James, and you read like James 3 or something like that, where it talks like you bear jealousy and selfish ambition and all the rest. Like, mm-hmm. you just read what it says, it's like, wow. Like, yeah. It, it cuts through all the surface, all the symptoms, and gets to the root in a way that yeah. other things don't. Yeah, God's word. It has the intention of getting literally to the heart of things. I mean, right? That's discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so God's word pierces that deep. And in, in that power, I mean, think about, I want to share this verse as well. This is from Isaiah, and this is prophesying about the word. The Lord, it says, um, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. And this is referring to um, the, the purpose that the son has from the father. This is prophesied. Um, and, and his purpose. But then we also have, I want to read one, one more verse here from 2 Thessalonians 2.8, and this is the judgment of the Antichrist here in particular. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, sorry. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing the appearance of his coming. So yes, that the, the word of God, in, which is Christ, but also when we have the text of scripture, it pierces and it judges and now, some of us, we get scared of that idea of judgment. Some, some people in our culture do. Uh, maybe if you're mature and knowing God's word, that doesn't really scare you if you're in Christ. Um, but when we think about judgment, judgment will happen. It must happen. And, and actually, if we thought a crime happened and judgment wasn't just, we'd be upset about it. Judgment is important. Uh, and so we think about the character of God as it relates to judgment. He here is saying, look, from his mouth. In other words, the things that he speaks. He doesn't have to go to a book to refer to. He doesn't have anything greater than himself. He is a just and righteous judge. And in judging, it goes on to say this, and continuing in our text, verse 16, and we'll transition to the next section. He said, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have ever like woken up in the morning, maybe you slept in from college and then someone opens your window and you're like, this is super bright and the sun is coming directly at you. And you're like, ah, you know, you feel like a vampire, like, right? You know, you're just like, <laughs> you're dying, you're melting, right? Um, the sun, when it's shining on you in full strength, is there something powerful about that? Something very powerful about that. And, um, you know, it's shi- it's, this is coming from the face of Christ and who he is, the, sh- the sun shining in full strength. So let's transition to the next section, uh, point number three here, which is verses 17 and 18. This is John's response. This is how John responds to seeing this glorified Christ. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That was his response. He was so afraid of this vision of the Son of Man, of Christ, that he fell at his feet so dead. It's hard for us to imagine, right? Because we're sitting in a room, you're looking at a bald, skinny, lanky guy trying to teach you the word. And it doesn't seem that heavy because you're not, you're not the one who had the vision, but John did. And if you sit here and think about it, 
and you try to imagine and conceptualize it, it, it really, I would say, it might be a beneficial exercise of the mind, but to think that when he saw him, it wasn't like he saw a painting or a picture. He saw a vision of the Son of Man. Yeah, imagine if you walked up to your doorstep on, in, in the morning, you walked outside, you saw a lion just staring right there at you. <laughs> yeah. And you were just, and you just, and you didn't expect it. You just walked up to your door like normal. You're going to work. Yep. Just, yep. And it's just like you don't even know how to respond. Freezing your tracks, right? Yep. Yeah. Like, now, you, at least you might not faint and be still be conscious, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but just in a small way that could be comparable, absolutely. Or, or, um, I remember when I was a kid, you know, walking out on the back porch, and I kind of walked right by it. But then my mom comes out right behind me, and she's like, Snake! <laughs> and she froze in her track. She freaked out, right? Um, that caught her attention. Um, but don't worry, I killed it. Um, but uh, that was a good son. So, um, but we see, right, we see the response here of fear. And what, what does Jesus do? But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. So even though he rightly should be filled with fear, even he's a believer, but he should be filled with fear in looking at the Son of Man. He reaches out. Yeah. 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 I'm a man of unclean lips. Yeah. He sees himself as unclean and uh, needs that salvation. And, and this idea of the first and the last we see really clearly here. You mentioned Isaiah. Let's actually turn there to a few references. Isaiah 41, 4. He says, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Let's get you all to read some more in, in chapter, uh, let's see, chapter 44, 6. Who could read 44, 6 for me? Isaiah 44, 6. Okay, and then someone else do 48, 12. Who could do that? Okay, so go ahead and read 44, 6, Luke. Oh, that was Sam? I'm sorry, dude. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last, and there's no God beside Hmm. And then 4812, Cade? Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I have called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Hmm. So we see this theme, it's even in the Old Testament. So when, even when Jesus is using it here, he is likening himself to God. He's saying, I am God. He's, he's, he's acknowledging his divinity here. Fear not, I am the first and the last. We even see that I am statement recognizes it's like from Exodus. I am, I am this. I am who I am, Yahweh. Fear not, I am the first and the last. And he goes on to say, I am the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Now, we're going to do a bunch of references. See, so y'all be ready for me, okay? Ready? Deuteronomy 5.26. Who's got it? Deuteronomy 5.26. Man, I said be ready, guys. Okay, Rachel, okay. <laughs> Joshua 3.10. Okay, 1 Samuel 17, 26. 1 Samuel 17, 26. Yep, Dalton, you got it? Okay. 1 Samuel 17, 26. Psalm 84, 2. Noah, got it. Matthew 16, 16. Okay. Acts 14, 15. Got it. 2 Corinthians 3, 3. And 1 Timothy 4, 10. Okay, Deuter Deuteronomy 5, 26, go. Who's got that? Rachel? Hmm. So they're in awe of the fact that they lived hearing the voice of God, right? And, and, and saying he is the living one. Acknowledging God is the living one. Joshua 3.10. And Joshua said, 
Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. 1 Samuel 17, 26. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach, reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Hmm. Psalm 84, 2. My soul longs, yes, thanks for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. To the living God they sing. That's, all, that's Old Testament. That's not even all of them. I just I tried to pick a few from different types of books. Um, and we see this theme of God being the living God. He's the living God in the Old Testament, but also in the New. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hmm. The Son of the living God. Acts 14, 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Hmm. The living God. Turn from the vain things to the living God. 2 Corinthians 3.3 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stones but on tablets of human hearts. And then 1 Timothy 4.10 To this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So we see really clearly in the Old and New Testament this theme of God being the living God. You want to know why God is called the living God? Because He's real. Because He's alive. In comparison with what? Idols. One of the texts specifically referred to idols. I think it was the one that Cade read in Acts 14 15. There are people who were actually trying to worship Paul and Barnabas, calling them Hermes and Zeus, and saying that they were gods because of the miracles they performed. And very clearly here, he says, no, we don't worship idols. We worship the living God. And any, you know, as John Calvin says, we could all, we all have this capacity within our hearts to be idol-making in our hearts. We have idol-making factories in our hearts. We can make an idol out of anything. In other words, I can say, I want to serve this more than I want to serve God. I can worship this more than I want to serve God. And we all have that capacity to do that because we have a sinful nature. Our problem is not our behavior. Our problem is not our circumstance. Our problem is our nature. And we will worship dead things and not the living God. And that is our problem. But when we look at Christ, he says, I am the first and the last, and I am the living one. And he, and, he, and he verifies this. He, he goes back and hearkens to the gospel. He says, look, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Guys, saying you're alive forevermore is really alien to us. You want to know why? Because all of us can probably name someone in our lives who has died, or we know someone who's died. You turn on the news, so-and-so died, this person died, that person died. Now, they're not here with us, they're not alive with us, they're, they're either with God or they're not. But someone here, not just someone, as we saw, someone who was so terrifying that he fell and fainted, died and rose again and is alive forevermore. And here we see really clearly in this text, as it continues on, why? 
Well, he says, essentially because of this, and I have the keys of death in Hades. I have the keys of death in Hades. Right here in my pocket are my car, my car keys. They're not your car keys. It's my car keys. No matter how bad, y'all want my 2001 Toyota Avalon with leather seats. All right? Pretty awesome. No matter how bad you want that 20-year-old car, that's mine. It's my car. I have the keys. It's under my authority. And the government treats it that way, right? Because if someone goes and uses my car and they get in an accident, who's held liable? I am. Because it's mine. It's my car, right? It's my car. But really, right? Think about it. When Christ says, I have the keys of Hades, of death and Hades. In other words, I own it. I beat it. I have authority over it. That's what Christ is saying. We don't have to be afraid of death. He defeated death. He has authority over it. Hey, guys, I want to highly recommend this book. Highly recommend this book. I've done it many times. On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius. Introduction by C.S. Lewis. Make sure you get that one. I want to talk to you about, when he talks about the death of Christ, and I want to read this to you. It is so rich. You guys need to think about how Christ's death how essential it is, but also his resurrection. We're going to talk about that, those two things. Listen to this. We have dealt as far as circumstances in our own understanding permit with the reason for his bodily manifestation. In other words, why Christ came. We have seen that to change the corruptible to incorruption was proper to none other than the Savior himself, who in the beginning made all things out of nothing that only the image of the Father could recreate the likeness of the image in men, that none save our Lord Jesus Christ could give to mortals immortality, and that only the Word who orders all things and is alone the Father's true and soul-begotten Son could teach men about Him and abolish the worship of idols. This is where I highlighted in my book. This is so good. But beyond all this, there was a debt. Think of your debt. A debt owing which must needs be paid. For, as I said before, all men were due to die. Here then is the second reason why the Word dwelt among us, namely, that having proved his Godhead by his works, he might offer the sacrifice on behalf of all, surrendering his own temple to death in the place of all, to settle man's account with death and free him from the primal transgression. In the same act, also, he showed himself mightier than death, displaying his own body incorruptible as the first fruits of the resurrection. You must not be surprised if we repeat ourselves in dealing with this subject. And I want to reiterate that. You must not be surprised if you constantly hear me proclaim the gospel every time the word of God is open. If I ever open the word of God and I don't proclaim the gospel, shame on me. We are speaking of the good pleasure of God and of the things which he in his loving wisdom thought fit to do. And it is better to put the same things in several ways than to run the risk of leaving something out. The body of the word, then, being a real human body, in spite of it having been uniquely formed from a virgin, was of itself mortal and like other bodies liable to death. But the indwelling of the word loosed it from its natural liability so that corruption could not touch it. Thus it happened that two opposite marvels took place at once. Listen to this. The death of all was consummated in the Lord's body, yet because the word was in it, death and corruption were in the same act utterly abolished. 
death, listen to this, death there had to be and death for all so that the due of all, what we owed, all might be paid. Wherefore the word, as I said, being himself incapable of death, assumed a mortal body that he might offer it as his own in place of all and suffering for the sake of all through his union with it, quoting scripture here, might bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver them who all their lifetime were enslaved, listen to this, were enslaved by the fear of death. Our culture in this world is enslaved by fear of death. But if you're a believer in Christ, you're not enslaved by that fear of death anymore. And he talks about this, actually, a couple pages forward on page 57 here. Talks about the resurrection. And guys, when I read this for the first time, it just blew my mind just trying to imagine this. He's talking about the disciples and the apostles and in the resurrection of Christ, one of the proofs being their response to death. And you might remember, 11 out of the 12 were martyred, right? They're martyred for the faith. Who here has had a near-death experience? Anyone? Anyone? It's pretty scary, isn't it? Whether it's a car accident, or getting very sick, right? Or almost falling off a cliff, or Steve Masters almost killing you in the Woodlawn bus. Anyone remember that? Amen? <laughs> so, <laughs> or Travis almost killing us in Utah. Yeah, you were in the front with me, right? We would all die. Yeah, yeah, I saved us, right? So, <laughs> by the grace of God. <laughs> uh, thank you, Lord. Okay. Um, being near death, right? It's, it can be terrifying, right? And the thing is, death has been conquered by Christ. And listen to this. I, I, just, I just love this. A very strong proof of this destruction of death and its conquest by the cross is supplied by a present fact, namely this. All the disciples of Christ despise death. Do you despise death? And let's, let's talk about what Athanasius means by this. He says, they take the offensive against it, and instead of fearing it, by the sign of the cross and by faith in Christ, trample on it as something dead. They trample on it as something dead. So weak has become death that even women who used to be taken in by it mock at it now as a dead thing robbed of all of its strength. Death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch, bound hand and foot as he now is. The passers-by jeer at him, at death, hitting him, hitting death, and abusing him, no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage because of the king who has conquered him. So death has been conquered and branded for what it is by the Savior on the cross. It is bound hand and foot. All who are in Christ trample it as they pass, and as witnesses to him deride it, scoffing, saying, O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? Guys, we worship the living God. We worship Christ. We worship the one who died, and behold, he is alive forevermore, and he has in his hands the keys to, of death and Hades. Which brings us to our last section, which is back to the same command he gave in the beginning. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. Now, when he says, therefore, we always ask the question, what is it again? What is it there for? Good job. You guys are good students. But this is not referring necessarily, primarily, to what just was happened in verse 18. This is going back first to, I think, the first command given in the beginning of the text in verse 11, where he says, write what you see in a book. 
and send it to the seven churches. And then he sees what happens. So this is re referencing back to that command. So yes, it is in a secondary sense referring to 12 to 16 or 12 to 18, but primarily to that original command, which is, we could say, the chiasm or the bookends on this entire text or inclusio. So right there for the things you have seen, what did he see? He just saw the Lord and he almost died. He fainted. That's what he saw. Then he says, and those that are. Now this reference to those that are, I believe, has to do with the present condition of the seven churches. So he's talking about chapters two and three of Revelation. And then he says, and those that are to take place after this, which I believe has to do with chapters four through 22, the rest of the book. This statement in verse 19, I believe, is a summary and outline of the whole book. That John is to write these things, the revelation he received from God of the things that are, that he had just seen in Christ, the things that are, those, those that are in the sense of the, the seven churches, chapters two to three, and then lastly, that last part, those that are to take place after this, verses four through 22. And so that leads us to the last verse here. And this actually brings us back to, remember when Jesus, the, he sees Jesus and he sees seven stars in his right hand? This is back to referencing that, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. So as now he's making it known. And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Ha, so now we know what they are. Don't you love it when scripture interprets scripture? It's not vague, it tells you what it means. Well, here's the thing. There are differing interpretations, and we were not, I'm not even going to get into all of them, to be honest, because there's, there's a few, but of the, what the seven stars are as it relates to the angels of the seven churches. Is it the bishops or elders of the church? Is it an actual angel, or is it a messenger? Uh, there's a lot of different theories out there as to what it is, okay? Uh, I believe it is it directly an angel assigned to that church, a messenger assigned to that church, um, and because it talks about in Hebrews how angels are um, there for believers. Um, now, they're not angels we pray to or anything like that, but angels do work for the preservation and, and salvation of uh, the elect. But so. isn't it true that this kind of interchangeable as well, the term angel? Mm -hmm. It's correct. So you you'd find old Greek literature and say that this... This angelos, which is the word for messenger in Greek, is someone who delivered the message. It could be. Um, but no, and, and what's interesting, right, you look at all the churches, it says, and to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? Right? So, so in other words, it's through these messengers. Um, so I think it very well could be, yeah, the bishop or elder, at that congregation. So I, I think that's a very viable theory as well. I always imagine it's someone like Timothy that they're writing to someone mm -hmm. at that church. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, but this is your congregation. This is where you deliver this to your people. Yeah. This message that I have for you. Yep. Absolutely. No, that's, that's, that's good. I, I, I don't think that's a bad way to take it either. So um, I think it's very reasonable. So um, really in summarizing this text, right, we talked about the main idea, right? We talked about the main idea of this passage and this main idea being that John is telling the seven churches of his vision of the glorified Christ, they heard, saw, and obeyed, that they might keep the word written to them. And really, we see a lot of themes of the person and work of Christ. Why don't you guys, just in the engagement of this text, kind of back to me, what are some themes you see about the person and work of Christ in this text? That, while might maybe explicitly mentioned in this text, might be implied from other passages to inform our meaning of who Christ is. Because in the beginning, I asked you a question. So who do you say Christ is? What's your conception of who Jesus is? 
So based off the text today, what are some things you see? Okay. I think when it is describing Jesus, a lot of the symbolism points you to purity and perfection. Mm. Yes. Right. Yes, the purity. I love that. You look at the white, or um, the hairs of his head were white, like wool and white as snow, you know, white being a symbol of purity. Right. And then, you know, you look at the burnished bronze. Right. It's a symbol of perfection. Yep. Yep. That had been through a, refi a refining fire, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a perfection. What's that? The illusion of fire, yeah. Fire purifies, yep. Right? So we see his voice. So what God says, it's majestic. Yeah. And all those attributes, are like all of them are different. And we're going to see later, like it's all going to, each one is going to be utilized like to show something in particular. Yeah. I think, it, 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 like he said, the perfections and the glory of Christ. Yes. Yes. Yeah. His glory as it is manifest in these things. Like I always think the white hair, for instance, would be like his wisdom. Yeah. His wisdom, the roar of many waters to be his power and his authority when he speaks. The eyes that are like, um, I forget what the, that one is, but that he, he sees everything. Burn fire. Yeah. He sees all, you know, in that case, and judges in that case. Like, so just like these different elements that come together to say, to um, give you this understanding of this being that was glorious. Yeah. He has this glory and authority. Glory over all. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. See the glory, especially in verse like 13, where it says with the long robe and the golden sash. Yeah. Something that a king, you know. Would yeah. You think of Isaiah when he has a vision in the temple and he sees the law, the train of his robe filled the temple. Yeah. That's massive, right? It's essentially what he's saying: the glory and the weightiness. And it, it's kind of funny, right? When you when a bride maybe walks down an aisle and she has a long train near to her dress, right? That's and it's a sense trying to depict majesty and, and beauty in a way. And, and glory, in a way. In the same way when a king does that. You, you've seen maybe the old cartoons, or maybe you've seen, I don't know, something depicting a king walking, and he has a long train to his robe, and, and it, it's pointing out the majestic and the weightiness and the glory, glory of that king. Um, so, anything else on the person and work of Christ themes that we see here? We see, yeah. yeah. Like, like y'all were talking about, I think it, uh, it highlights his, even the conquered king, mm. uh, Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Rachel? I think it also points out how he's the one who's prophesied about. Hmm. Like we see he's the son of man. Right. And how that lined up with Daniel, as you pointed out. And then also. Um, so the work of Christ in particular we see there. Yeah. Uh, you were going to say? Yeah, it also reminded me of like when. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Jordan, what were you saying too? Oh, I was just highlighting again, like those attributes that are here about like Christ and Lord, they're spoken of of God, like in the book of Daniel. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, when we made those comparisons, yeah, absolutely. That's good. I think he's also highlighted again that he's the faithful witness, right? Yes. Tell tell this to the church. You know, I'm not going to leave them in the dark. Like, you know, you need to tell this. It goes back to that. And then even just, you know, obviously the firstborn from the dead, we see at the very end, that kind of theme there. But then the ruler of the kings of the age and all these things, we talked about his might, his power, purity, all these kind of things, his wisdom. Yeah. Well, I also noticed that 
like, you know, in what he's wearing, like the golden sash and on his chest and all that kind of stuff. Um, and standing next to the lampstand, it kind of like points to the fact that he's like a high priest on. Yeah, no, you got that right. Yep, the imagery of the high priest, yeah. Yeah. So really we see with the lampstands, because it's worship, right? These, these churches worship Christ, and he has the golden sash. That's a reference to the priesthood. And so it goes back to what we covered last week. As a, he's a prophet. He's a faithful witness, right? We see that clearly in this text, proclaiming the word. We see the priest with the lampstands and all these different things, but we also see, uh, lastly, we see the king, and we see the majesty of the king. So we see all three of these things, these, these threes coming back, these, these patterns here. I think, um, you know, just to mention a, a couple other things, um, we see um, sovereignty, we see fear, uh, the right fear of the Lord, um, and, and our, reading the right response to the person of Christ. Uh, we see comfort as well, because he's, even in fear, Christ extends his hand to comfort. And for those who are afraid of the judgment of God, like, we've got to think about this for a moment. If you're afraid of the judgment of God in your life, you can be delivered by going to Him. And then that fear goes away. It's amazing that God alle- alleviates that. But then lastly, we talked about Him being a conqueror. Someone mentioned that as well, the victory that we see in Christ here as well, defeating death. So the concluding statement, it's real simple, guys. I think the concluding statement for us tonight regarding this text is it's this. It's see, to see Jesus for who He truly is, that you would just see Jesus for who He truly is. That's who He is. Jesus is this mighty conqueror who we are to fear. So, in thinking about this mighty conqueror, this judge whose eyes are like a flame of fire, purifying, and as he looks into our hearts and lives. You know, I think of um, the past week, hearing so much preaching from the Word, and it was so good for me to hear a lot of those things heard this week. And it was just me and Jill. Like, the kids were gone, and we had so many great conversations over dinner, uh, and, and even just talking just so much. And, um, and so many things were just convicting, and they were refreshing, things I just needed to hear again, truths I needed to hear again and again and again. And the whole conference was about Christ. So we talked about Christ and these just different aspects and of his character, his person, his work. This made me think, um, made me reflect on who Jesus is. And I want to ask a question to... Um, Maybe if anyone here could be an unbeliever tonight. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you've grown up in church. You've heard it your whole life, but you may not be a believer. You don't have that assurance. I want to ask you this question. Do you want to be judged by your works or his work? Do you want to be judged by your works or his work? If you're judged by your works, you have to face this person that John fell before as as though he was dead. This one who, with his eyes of flaming fire, will judge you. And from his mouth will come a sword, a two-edged sword, to judge you. Do you want to be judged by your works, or do you want to be judged by his work? I pray that you'd want to be judged by his finished work, because he was our substitute. Think of, he traded. He, it's an account that was settled. He, God the Father, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God through faith. Is that you today? I want to ask you if you truly see Jesus for who he is. There's a song we sing, I know we're not singing this song next, I didn't ask Luke to do it, but I just, I was reflecting on it as I was preparing this message, a song we sing at the conference is Turn Your Eyes from Sovereign Grace. I want to read to you the verses. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, 
look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Listen to this next verse, especially maybe if you don't know Christ. Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of God gave his life for us, and our measureless debt was erased. Next verse. Turn your eyes to the morning and see Christ the lion awake. What a glorious dawn. Fear of death is gone, for we carry his life in our veins. And lastly, turn your eyes to the heavens. Our king will return for his own. Every knee will bow and every tongue will shout all glory to Jesus alone. Are your eyes on Christ? Do you see Christ for who he truly is? Do you fear death? Do so no longer. Trust in Christ. Rely on Christ because his life flows in your veins. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time that we could study the word and study this passage. And God, we pray that as we reflect on your word and we respond through song and through prayer, God, we pray that we would rightly respond to your word and rightly see you for who you are. And that God, that would continue to sanctify and change us further into the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.